You're listening to DraftKings Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've had to work really hard on not doing finger guns. I've made huge progress hard on, not. on not doing it in photos. If, some, if a camera comes to that's, me. That's your, this is your default? It was. It's not anymore. How was how long and how long ago? I'd rather not say. Welcome to Oddball. I'm Amino Hassan, and I'm joined as always by Charlotte Wilder. A little later in the program. Part one of our conversation with Jeff Perlman is the author of Showtime, the book that became the basis of the HBO television series Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. But first, the headlines. According to Sham Sharani of The Athletic, James Harden told NBA investigators that he was referring to Daryl Morey telling him to opt into his $35.6 million deal which would make it easier for him to be traded. That's what he was referring to when he called him a liar, not the much more egregious infraction of, hey, take less money, and then I'll take care of you next summer. So, I mean, say what you will about James Harden. He is not a snitch. I mean, he might call you a liar in public, but he ain't no snitch. He might show up out of shape and fat, but snitch, he will not do. Might, I don't know. Skip your wedding, eat cheeseburgers with some local rappers, but snitch? Never. Hey, he might skip coming to camp, maybe, and just go out and party with little baby at COVID hotspots. Snitch? Inconceivable. He might be, like, practicing weird TikTok dances in China with no... I mean, you get the point. He ain't no snitch. He's not going to snitch. That's right. No snitching. When it comes to the debate of who was the greatest point guard ever, Steph Curry had this to say. Are you the best point guard ever? Yes. I have to, yes. Is me and Magic? Is that the, the conversation? Meanwhile, Steph's new teammate, Chris Paul, is in the corner of the gym over there being like, uh, I'm literally right here. They call me point god? Over the weekend, Giannis Antetokounmpo, part owner of Nashville SC of the MLS, which just played in the League Cup Finals and against Messi and Inter-Miami and lost, said, quote, of course he'd consider heading to Saudi to play after his NBA playing career for, quote, a lot of money. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, Giannis. 
Not quite. Also, don't you know you take money from the MLS? You don't give money to the MLS? I mean, what does MLS stand for anyway? Major League Sucker? <laughs> Am I yeah. right? <laughs> it was a terrible joke, but I said it just to say this. Messi's a fraud. Yeah, that's right. Coward. What is this, a soccer show? Jeez. Yeah, well, you, you take the advantages when you can get them. Yeah, oh, you take the advantages when you can get them. Yeah. <laughs> Putting that on a T-shirt. After Anthony Edwards led Team USA to a comeback win against Germany in a FIBA World Cup exhibition game, Team USA head coach Steve Kerr said that Edwards is unquestionably the guy. Uh, I don't know. I have questions. Which guy? There are a lot of guys. What kind of guy? How many guys can you be? Is there only one guy? I mean, guys, what what guy are we talking about? What about Guy Ritchie? No. What about Guy Pieri? No, he's not that. Well, he is that guy. Damn it. What about Guy Pierce? Who's Guy Pierce? What about Guy Fox? Uh, no, definitely not. He I'm going to blow up Parliament. Look at he's me, a- America. Look how Guy is living for the city. In more Anthony Edwards news, Edwards says Kevin Durant reminds him of himself, which is why KD is his favorite player of all time. And you look over my shoulder there, his top five players of all time. Noticeably absent from Edwards' top five is one LeBron James. Now, at first I was going to say, well, maybe he's doing the Dr. J thing and picking guys that only played in an era before his. But then, you know, Kevin Durant there in the five spot kind of changes all that. So I guess... uh Your move, LeBron. Chris Paul said he feels sorry for teams playing against the Warriors this upcoming season, noting that he and Draymond together will be great. And I quote, because he's always been very vocal, as am I. I've always thrived with guys like that. Ah, yes. Famously thrived. Meadowlark teammates Andre Iguodala and Evan Turner were recently on the Gilbert Arenas podcast and told a story about how the NBA will always value ratings, money, and entertainment over competitiveness. Take a listen. I remember we were about to play Game 7, uh, 2012. So we were about to play the Celtics or whatever. Game 7. So I'm hyped as hell. I'm like, yeah, bro, we got a Game 7. Like, we out the bam. Like, this is going to be lit. So Elton's like, you know we're going to have to win by 15 just to win by 1. So I'm like, what you mean? He's like, bro, this is the NBA. It's entertainment. Like, LeBron is in a heat or waiting. Would you rather watch the Celtics or the Sixers play the heat? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm on the team. I wouldn't even watch <laughs> the Sixers play the heat. Type <laughs> like, you got to appreciate it. But, but mind you, I'm young, 22, 23. I'm like, damn, damn. You know what I mean? So it's like, so we get in this game, you know how much money the NBA is going to lose. I'm telling you, take M's and M's from this. I'm like, what? He's like, millions of memories. Because this is entertainment. Damn, that's a bar. Look, I looked up that game seven. Let's just say it's not going to Springfield. The Sixers and the Celtics had roughly the same amount of fouls. Got to the free throw line roughly the same amount of times, although the Sixers missed six free throws to the Celtics too. Also, the Sixers shot 35% from the field. And in the fourth quarter, they let the Celtics shoot 69%. Nice. Look, I'm telling you one thing. This game may have been rigged. It wasn't rigged by the NBA, though. (laughs) So basically, they're saying that Aisha Curry was right. Oh, let's not bring this back again. 
It's my oh, favorite tweet of all time. Absolutely I, rigged for money. Jeez. Oh my God. I'm never, I'm never letting that go. N- nor should anyone. Further investigation has uncovered that Nick's president, Leon Rose, and executive vice president, William Wesley, were indeed in attendance at Philadelphia's 76ers star Joel Embiid's wedding this summer. Now, gotta say, a ring ceremony must have been a brave new experience for Nick's execs. Ah. Wait, no, but please, please let me go to Nick's games. Please, please, please let me into Madison Square Garden. Oh, Charlotte, always begging to get into the garden. I'm so scared they're not going to let me. I'm so scared they're not going to let me in the first Celtics game, the opening day. A former NBA social media employee used the NBA's official verified Facebook account to blast work conditions, claiming 14-hour shifts with no breaks at times and a 90-day wait period before health insurance benefits kicked in. So like a job, right? It was a job? It's a regular working job, right? I I don't even have health insurance, so thanks, my lord. Oh, I have to wait 90 days. Like, have you ever had a job before, kid? I'd wait 90 yeah. days. Wait, we got more? What is, what is this? From the Oddball Facebook account, Oddball is seriously tarnishing my reputation as a journalist, and I fear I'm going to get canceled as a result of something controversial my co-host says? Shout out, I mean, Charlotte. I, did, uh, I didn't, I definitely, I would never say that. I didn't. Uh, I was hacked. It's another one. The talent on this show never listens to me and are constantly negative about any idea I bring to the table. This show overextends its producers and I have been working 22-hour shifts with no breaks. That's silly, isn't it? That's not even true. How do I log out of this? I look forward to the time when I can say I haven't worked here in weeks. I mean... Wait, why would I sign my name on this post? I just removed all aspects of anonymity. You did Let's that. Let's talk to Jeff Perlman next. Have you ever wondered if Chet Holmgren might be a descendant of Abraham Lincoln? Or if a UFC fighter could beat an alien in a fight? You might have not, and that's okay. But Shea Serrano and Jason Concepcion from the Six Trophies podcast have. If you love basketball and more importantly, if you love fun, you've got to listen to Six Trophies, where Shea and Jason serve up the biggest moments from around the NBA with their brand of unbridled joy, banter and pop culture side quests. Each week, they hand out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities, stuff like the Denzel Washington in Training Day trophy, given out to the player or team having the best week around the NBA. Or the Lauren Hill you might win some dot dot dot, but you just lost one trophy for the team or player that just can't get it together. Plus a bunch more trophies for all the good, bad, or just plain head-scratching moments around the NBA. This playoff season, you'll want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Our next guest is a writing icon. He's a journalist. He is the author of Showtime, Magic, Kareem Riley, and the L.A. Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. It is the basis of HBO's winning time, the rise of the Lakers dynasty, which you can watch Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern 
and available to stream on Max. His name is Jeff Perlman. And Jeff, first of all, thank you for joining us. I've been a fan of your work for quite a while, uh, your writing, and obviously uh, the show now. I'm a fan of the show. But not everyone has been a fan of the show. So I'd like to hear from you what the feedback has been to you, given that you wrote the book that was the basis. And I don't remember anyone being upset about the book. It's funny. I get asked about this a lot. Like, how does it feel to have people criticize it? You know, obviously people like Jerry West and Magic Johnson. Jeannie mm. Buss just said some really nice things about it last night, which is nice on social media. I um, I wrote the book. Nobody complained about the book. The book received nobody with the Lakers complained. I, Jeannie loved it. Linda Rambis loved it. People genuinely felt the book was great. I, I'm not a TV guy. Like, I, I don't work in TV. I have never worked in TV until now. It is a new phenomenon for me, this idea of inspired by like those words inspired by like 42 was inspired by the jackie robinson story mm -hmm. Moneyball was inspired by the michael lewis book inspired by and it's a new world for me and i actually get it i always say i think the show is great i love the show i dig the show it's changed my life in so many awesome ways but i get it i get if you're magic johnson or you're kareem or you're jerry west and you're watching the show on tv and you have nothing to do with the show when there's a guy literally named jerry west who looks like you who's sitting in the Laker offices saying things that you didn't say, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's dramatic. So it's not a, a documentary. I always get it. And I've said to the writers on the show, cause last year, I think some of them were really taken aback. And I always say, you have to, you have to understand where they're coming from. Like you have to understand they're watching interpretations of themselves and it's painful and it doesn't always jive with how one sees it himself. So I always get it. I don't begrudge anyone. Um, and if, if someone did a show about iconic sports writer, Jeff Perlman, and they had some funny looking bald guy in glasses playing me sitting in a office, like I sit in and he was saying things I didn't exactly say, I might feel the same way. So I actually always understand it. I really do. So I get it. I get it. Have, have you talked to anybody about it? Like, have, have you talked to Jeannie or, or Jerry or, you know, what Jeannie said was sort of amazing. She was like, I love watching the show because I miss my dad. And when I yeah. watch the show, it's like watching my dad because John C. Riley has done such a great job. And, and the details of his wardrobe going to the same tailor uh, that, you know, it, it just it, it was sort of moving to me. And I wondered if you'd heard from them personally. First of all, I just want to say it's funny because with your your screensaver there, you actually look like Magic and Bird are about to eat you. Like, right. <laughs> which is kind of funny. And number two, <laughs> back off. Back off, back boys. Off. <laughs> Uh, and number two, um, yeah, I've, you know, I've talked to people with the Lakers just out of, con I'm, I'm not lying. I swear, but out of confidence, I'm not going to name them because they were private cause people who enjoyed the show. Um, Jeannie doesn't really talk to me anymore. And I don't know if that's just whatever. I think she was upset at first. I don't know. And I, I love Jeannie bus and, um, she's, I gotta say not just, I, I live in Southern California. I'm an adjunct journalism professor at Chapman university in orange, California, and twice Jeannie came down to talk to my class, brought tickets, sat there for nothing to gain except just being a nice person. I've zero bad to say about her. I think she was taken aback by the show at first and maybe upset by the show at first. And again, I would understand you're the Lakers. HBO says, well, we're doing the show and it's about your team and we're going to use your uniforms. Like, I get it. But I think over time, what has happened is um, they've seen the care the devotion to the 80s Lakers, the effort that was put in, like you said, she mentioned sort of 
going to the same tailor that her dad used, that Jerry Buss used to get his clothes. So I think they've come around to it, and I think they understand what it is and have come to appreciate it as an homage to the 80s Lakers. The the interesting thing, Jeff, was when season one came out, right on the heels of that, I know Magic Johnson had his multi-part documentary that came out on Apple. I know the Lakers had their multi-part docuseries that came out on Hulu. And both of them were very interesting and, you know, and added, obviously, because they extended beyond the scope of season one of Winning Time. But the thing I walked away thinking was they made it seem like Winning Time was so far away from the real story. Wait till we tell the real story. And the parts that had been told that were analogous to what was in Winning Time was pretty much on point. I know. And any inaccuracies, I thought, if anything, painted them in a more positive picture on Winning Time. Some of the stuff I learned on the Magic Johnson documentary was like, oh, my God. I mean, if anything, I would be like, yes, yes, believe Winning Time. They've, they've got the right story because they've actually softened up the image some. Because to be quite honest, some of Magic Johnson's tellings of the 80s makes him come across as a very unlikable person yeah. uh, in, in ways that I'm sure that he acknowledges himself. But I, I just thought I was very surprised because I thought you guys did a great job. And the reaction I thought was, oh, this is so salacious. That's not at all how it happened. And instead, it was the opposite. It was winning time actually cleaned up a lot of the dynamics here. It was funny because I remember when the Hulu uh, series came out and it was like, learn the true story of the Lakers. And then they opened with the exact same thing that was in winning time. It was weird. Um, And it's also interesting. And this is not a dig at anybody. I mean, literally anybody. I have no beef in this at all. But I do think a lot of times, like I think Kareem said, um, Kareem or Magic said, if you want to get the true story, you only can get it from us. Mm -hmm. I say this as a guy who writes biographies. If you want to truly understand the actual true story of someone, you don't want to get it from them. Because if I'm going to tell you like the Jeff Perlman story, I mean, I'm going to tell you that I'm really charitable and I'm a great dad. I'm there for my kids and blah, blah, blah. But then you're going to interview all the people around me if you're not getting the Jeff Perlman story from Jeff Perlman. And some guy's going to tell you, man, that guy was such an asshole to me. Mm -hmm. He was so thin skinned when he was in college or he was this and he was that. And if you're getting it from the actual source, you're not getting that. So it actually, you can make the argument, none of it is actually the true story, because if I'm telling it from my perspective, I'm telling it from you, I'm giving you what you want to hear. And if I'm telling it from an outsider's perspective, well, I can't, like Alex, I can't get in your head and tell you what you were thinking that time you were doing so-and-so. So it's just two different ways of storytelling. And I think ultimately, usually a biographer is telling a more accurate story than an autobiography. It's just my right. Well, I mean, to, to that note, you know, because we've seen obviously an explosion in the last three or four years of uh, subject driven uh, biographies, right? Or, you know, whether it's these documentaries, you know, the Steph Curry one just came out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Last Dance is one that was p- kind of sparked all this, the Tom Brady 10 part series, the Derek Jeter one. Yeah. And all of them have suffered from the same thing, which is this is one long commercial. For the subject, because the subject is the executive producer on it. And as someone who's written, you know, not only this, you, you wrote the book on uh, Walt Payton, again, iconic writer, accomplished uh, author. How hard is it to get to the true story of someone when you don't have the blessing of the access and the, you know, they'll sit down and give you everything? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, 
obviously you'd always rather have an interview with the subject. Like I, my last book was a biography of Bo Jackson, the former baseball and football player. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed 720 people for that. I did not get Bo Jackson, but I interviewed 720 people. Would I have loved an hour sit down or four hours sit down with Bo Jackson? Of course I would, you know, of course I would. But I just think ultimately talking to the people he influenced the most directly, the people who had the greatest influences on him is a really powerful way to go about doing a biography. I'm not saying that to justify my existence. I've always felt that way. Like I just do. And I think a lot of times, again, when you interview people, they're going to put their best foot forward and nothing's wrong with that. That is a valuable perspective. But I do think like when I did uh, Walter Payton, you know, I interviewed everybody I could find who worked for him once he was done with football, all his office employees, his secretaries, his managers, all that stuff. And they had all this insight into him that were he alive, he would not have given me, you know? So it's hard. I'm doing a Tupac Shakur biography now. I'm losing my freaking mind. Like I'm losing <laughs> my mind. It is nonstop finding people who had little stories to tell or moments in his life. And it drives you crazy. But I do think at the end of the day, you can get a pretty accurate and honest portrait of who someone was. Jeff, you got to go to Cuba if you want to sit down with Tupac. I'm told he's still there. Oh he actually, no, I can tell you right now, he works at the Taco Bell in Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> I was there yesterday. There. Jeff, is there any little story or something that you think exemplifies the 80s Lakers? And and is there anything that you felt was really important that has been left out of the show or or something you advocated for? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. The, first of all, the book, um, goes from 79 to 91. And so far, the series, just an episode, uh, season two, mm-hmm. 79, 80 was the first season. And then uh, basically 80, 81 through 84. So knock on whatever, that hopefully there are a lot of <laughs> left that can go. There was um, the one guy I always think of when I think of the 80s Lakers, this is super weird, is they had a backup center named Earl Jones who came along in the mid 80s and they drafted him in the first round, late in the first round on a lark, came from the University of District of Columbia. He shows up in L.A. and he's totally clueless. He's this bumpkin from West Virginia. And early on, it is very clear to Magic Johnson and the others that this guy is just not at their level. And during practices, this guy Earl Jones, he he thinks he's the man, but he sucks. He's he's a backup center. He's garbage. And Magic Johnson deliberately, deliberately is throwing him no-look passes that bounce off his head over and over and over again because he's basically like, you either keep up with us and you keep up with the speed and what we're doing here, or you have no business being here. And I always thought like Magic Johnson, smiling, happy, go lucky, giddy Magic Johnson, the Magic Johnson you see on ads, imagine like behind that was a very Larry Bird type person, like cutthroat. Mm-hmm. We're going to win or, or, or you're out of here. Like it is all about winning, winning, winning. He had much more of a digestible uh, appearance, front appearance than Larry Bird, but they were really the same guy. And I always thought his treatment of this out of his depth, Earl Jones, really sort of told that story, at least to me. Jeff, who, to that point, who's the most misunderstood Laker of the 80s? I think Kareem. I do. I think Kareem, it's really interesting. Like, he was very standoffish. People are all, all, all the time you hear, oh, this guy's such an asshole. He's such a jerk. He's not nice to kids, blah, blah. And he's a guy who grew up in New York, super abnormally tall from the time he was a you know little little kid so non-stop comments about that um when he was in high school you know he had this coach he loved this white basketball coach in high school he loved who one day just dropped the n-word on him and like kind of shattered kareem and like he just had this real he was really misunderstood he wasn't 
he was awkward. He wasn't a jerk. He was not socially adept. He wasn't being mean, you know, and like he, there was this perception that he was just a, a complete monster of a human. And he, he wasn't, he was thought when they would fly, when they would travel, they used to still fly commercial. All the other Lakers would be sitting by the terminal talking to fans. Kareem would be in the bathroom, in the airport bathroom with a book in the stall, sitting on the toilet, hiding for hours. Like that was Kareem. I I wouldn't mind doing that sometimes when I'm in the airport. Depends on the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair. LaGuardia is nice now. Um, yeah. Jeff, this might be a dumb question. So did you, did you go to set? And if that is a dumb question, and obviously you did, how often were you there and, and what was the vibe like? There are no dumb questions. I did. Um, well, there's some, but not that. I'm, I'm capable of some. So that is not a dumb question. I, um, yeah, I went to set a bunch. Season two, actually, well, season one, my wife, myself, and my kids were in the pilot episode. So the first episode, my wife plays the uh, the, the administrative assistant to the Chicago Bulls GM. So there's a scene where she laughs. And in season two, episode six, I play a reporter actually named Jeff. And in a press conference, I asked three questions. And Jerry, um, John C. Riley's character calls on me and goes, Jeff, and I answer, ask about the questions. So you'll be able to see me. And it was... um. It's actually funny. It was pretty miserable. So um, they huh. gave me these lines and I was super psyched. Well, I mean, the people have been wonderful. Everyone's been wonderful. They've been awesome. So it's nothing personal. But they were like, all right, do you want to, we're going to give you these lines and you're going to be in a scene. And I was so excited. Like I was really pumped. HBO show based on my book. I'm a producer this season. I get paid to do it. Like everything about it was awesome. And I showed up at 930 in the morning and I get there and I'm there early. It's on the Warner lot in LA craft services so they have free food or free food and a journalist is like you know <laughs> love and marriage it's like and and um i go into makeup and i put on my like they give me a, a wig and they glue stuff in my head and i get all the clothes on and i'm like this is great and i go to the set and i'm in the scene and they shoot it once and i'm nervous because i have these lines and i, I have it written literally written on my hand i wrote some of my lines just to cheat right and i do the line then there i do it again do it again I ended up shooting that scene, I think it was 104 times overall. Because no not just me, it was a whole scene. So it wasn't like I oh, screwed up, but it, right. it was 104 times over. I did not leave until 10 or 11 at night. I was exhausted, like exhausted. And it was really boring. Like it was painfully boring. And the worst thing was I go home. When I left, they took my wig off. I had this real severe wig on. I take the wig off and the whole thing. And the next morning I wake up and I'm taking a shower and I'm feeling my head. My head is like double its size. And I had to go to urgent care because I had an allergic oh. reaction to the wig glue. Oh. So my head had blown up. I was freaking out. I was like, what the hell is going on here? I had like a second head growing out of my head. So overall, it is cool that I have the clip. Like it's it's great. It's a great memento from this time in my life. Do I have any interest in being an actor? No, zero. See that kids that tell you to follow your dreams and go to Hollywood and then you end up with a puffy head and a yeah, just be a writer. Head. You're always better being a writer. No problem. <laughs> nothing to be allergic to unless you're allergic. <laughs> That's all the oddball we have right now. I'm Amino Hassan letting you know that Charlotte Wilder is still employed.